0: Welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the ONTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Mark Fullman. Mark is a longtime journalist and the national affairs editor for Mother Jones. Since 2012, Mark created a first-of-its-kind public database of mass shootings. His various investigations into gun violence have been honored with numerous awards. Mark's writing and commentary have been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and NPR. Mark resides in the Bay Area with his wife and two children. Mark, welcome to the OnTIC Protective Intelligence podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. Mark, tell us a little bit about your book, Trigger Points.
1: Yeah, so I started work on this book um, almost a decade ago when I was really focusing on investigating the problem of public mass shootings in the United States. And I had grown pretty weary of the uh, kind of interminable gun debate, the, the political debates we have about gun laws and, and um, you know the way that that narrative really kind of dominated the discussion in terms of news coverage. Uh, It's an important debate, regulation of firearms, but I really felt that there had to be more we could do to deal with this problem. And I had some fundamental questions about it too as I was gathering data on it. Um, You know, how much was this problem really happening and who was doing it and how? And that led me down a road to learning about the field of behavioral threat assessment, uh, which struck me as a really interesting territory and an opportunity to really push the research and the conversation beyond just the the repeated debate that our country seem to be having about, about these attacks.
0: Mark, I know how I got in this business and quite frankly, I'm not so sure I would have done it again, you know, starting out as a cop and then uh, being a special agent. Uh, why did you pick this topic?
1: Well as I said, I just I felt it was really important to kind of take this on in a different way. It just seemed like we were all so stuck in having the same arguments about guns and gun violence. And it was clear too that there were a lot of other factors feeding into this. You know, People always are looking for simple explanations of why these mass shootings happen and, and then want to ascribe blame to things in a very simplistic way, whether it's you know blaming violent video games or blaming mental illness, uh, blaming the media, blaming politics. But of course, this is a very complicated problem. And so as an investigative journalist, that is a sign of very rich territory and, and the prospect for, for learning and for deepening a conversation and for, in an ideal situation, finding better solutions to what I think has become a very difficult problem in our society.
0: I was listening to one of your previous interviews where you discussed uh, the big myths as it pertains to mass shootings. What would those be?
1: I think there are several big myths that we have about this problem. One of them, which I was just alluding to, is the idea that these are all caused by mental illness. We hear that stated a lot in the aftermath of major attacks, and there isn't really scientific evidence to support that claim. Uh, No one who commits a mass shooting is a mentally healthy person in in a basic sense. I think part of the issue here is that we run up against the limits of lay language in describing mental health. Uh, But I think the implication for the general public is that all mass shooters are crazy, insane. And this goes hand in hand with the very common theme that mass shooters just snap, quote unquote. What made the guy snap? That's not how these cases work. These are planned acts of violence. And when you study the cases, you see that in every single case, there is a process leading up to these attacks of planning and preparation, um, often including the surveillance of targets, acquiring weapons, um, developing and furthering a violent idea and, and set of justifications for the attack. So to the extent that there are cases where uh, perpetrators have serious mental health problems. Those may or may not figure into their their motivation, but it's a complex picture. And by just blaming it on on insanity, we're kind of dismissing the problem in a way that that really fundamentally misunderstands it. In, in my view,
0: yeah, that's most interesting. I know uh, just from uh, my days as an agent investigating attacks against. Uh, diplomatic officials. Uh, There's a very specific attack cycle that takes place. And I learned a long time ago that the only way you can disrupt that attack cycle was to catch that individual, whether it be that active shooter or that stalker or that terrorist in that pre-operational surveillance phase. And I think you've touched on something in Trigger Points that, um, is so true to this business as to how there is this almost uh, tick-tock that goes on behind the scenes as to how these individuals start to go about their target selection and then actually carry out the attack.
1: Yeah, and and this relates to another myth as well, uh, the idea that nobody can see these coming. We hear that theme a lot in in news media coverage of mass shootings. that sometimes is coming out of interviewing people around the offender, people who knew the person, and, and they say things like, oh, he was such a quiet guy, and I, I never would have expected this. And it creates the sense that there's no, there's no sense that it was going to happen, that it came out of nowhere. But again, that's wrong. Um, that sort of fits with the idea of snapping, right? But what that belies is that there is a trail of behavioral warning signs in so many of these cases. And they're often detectable to people around a would-be attacker. So from the perspective of security professionals, I think this is very important, right? That that you need to be able to look at the patterns of behavior and circumstances that lead up to mass shootings. And in some ways, that becomes almost more important than the question of motive, the question of why, which is often very, very difficult to answer in these cases.
0: You know, you've touched on something that uh, I've talked and written about over the years too, when the only way you can figure out these attacks ahead of time is to focus on the how, not so much the why, and at times you may never know what the why is.
1: That's right. And, and that only becomes more evident when you dig deeply into these cases which is you know, the work that I did for the book and is the work of threat assessment professionals and researchers. Unfortunately, the public never gets there because you know we go through a cycle of news coverage and then everyone forgets about it until the next one happens. And it never gets that kind of depth of attention. And that's often because a lot of information about these cases only comes out later through deep investigation by forensic experts and through uh, criminal proceedings and, and so on. Uh, that is part of the reason why I wrote this book, too, because I could see that there was a lot of really rich and important storytelling in these cases to further illuminate the true nature of the problem.
0: Mark, in the course of all the work you've done at uh, Mother Jones and certainly Trigger Points, if you had to describe your typical kind of mass shooter is there an individual that fits some sort of model? In short, the answer is no. And, and this is another
1: one of the myths that, that mass shooters can be profiled um, in terms of characteristics or types of people. Uh, I think that the, the general public tends to believe that this is all young to maybe middle-aged white males who do this crime. But that's not the case. There are a lot of people from different backgrounds in a wider Age range who commit mass shootings—they are overwhelmingly male—and there's some interesting questions I think that that go to that. But that also is not predictive in and of itself, of course. Uh, so really, the answer is that we're talking about behavioral profiles, or even a, a profile of a behavioral process. That's a way that I like to describe it in, in trigger points. Uh, that again, you're talking about identifying patterns of behavior and sets of circumstances that can tell you who may be turning dangerous in this way, going down what the field of threat assessment calls the pathway to violence, right? That describes a, an escalating process towards an attack. Um, so there really isn't any way to identify who's going to do this based on what they look like or who they are, or where they come from. It's a question of what they do and then to some degree why they are doing it or what are the circumstances that are causing them to do it and, and figuring out the, the kind of core nature of their problems, of their grievances or, or despair and then trying to step in and intervene constructively.
0: We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment, but first I wanted to tell you a little about Antec's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. This is why we created the OnTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.com. .co/center that's ontic.co/center and you know you really have touched on something that I've learned over the years pretty much every after action investigation I ever did the warnings and indicators were always there uh, we just never found them ahead of time
1: yeah, you know, part of this too, Fred, for me has is really a matter of, I think, demystifying this problem. You know, we, this is another aspect of the, the cultural narrative we have about mass shootings, that the people who do this are monsters, that they're evil. Um, you know, there's a reason why I think true crime is so popular as a genre, right? We have a certain fascination with it in this way. But I think in some ways that's unhelpful to understanding the nature of the problem But I think that if we focus on the kind of sensational framing, as we tend to do in the general public and in the media, we tend to get bogged down in the idea that this is something that we can't relate to at all, that the people who do this are are monsters, they're the other, they're not like us. But really, this is human behavior, right? This This is people acting in a way that is driven by life experience and circumstances. And the imperative here is to understand that better so that we can disrupt it.
0: Do you think, Mark, uh, for those of us in this space, which obviously you are in as well, and the professionals in in this business, do we suffer from a common language, meaning, is it an active shooter? How do we define a mass shooting? I do think there
1: are some big challenges in that regard. and. I think the same might apply to the the terminology of this work too the you know calling this threat assessment and trying to convey that to the general public because as you know this this work often uh requires good community engagement you need people to raise a hand and speak out when they're concerned right a lot of threat cases start start that way so yes I do think there are some issues with with sort of the framing and language of all this and to your point, the question of what is the mass shooting? I mean, I've grappled with that a lot in my work and, and the database I built for Mother Jones. How do we define this problem? Uh, I really tried to focus on a particular type of attack uh, that I guess perhaps is maybe most explained by its, uh, the, the difficulty of explaining it in terms of motive. You know, Why does someone walk into a movie theater and shoot dozens of people or an elementary school or a supermarket? Um, that may be distinct from what we consider to be more sort of conventional crimes of mass gun violence, where you have groups of people squaring off in, in a gang situation or an armed robbery that results in a mass shooting. Um, those are a little bit easier to explain. They're not less important problems, but I think that they're different problems. So these aren't easy distinctions to make or to explain. In sound bites to the general public, or even within, I think the profession of of security or in mental health, and so that is a real challenge here.
0: Yeah, I think so. And aren't most suicidal? Yeah, that is an important aspect
1: of this, and I think speaks to the the nexus of of the work, the the collaborative expertise of mental health professionals, law enforcement experts, and others who get involved in this work. Uh, the fact that a majority of mass shooters are suicidal is very important, I think, in terms of thinking about prevention work um, and it also I think suggests the benefits of threat management more broadly in the sense that even if you have people who are perhaps suicidal that maybe aren't considering attacking others or committing homicide um, or maybe they haven't gotten to that point yet you're still going to create benefit in in communities by, obviously, by addressing a person who is in crisis like that. That's very serious. Um, Suicide is a huge part of our gun violence problem in the United States. It accounts for roughly two-thirds of annual gun deaths, tens of thousands of people each year. So I think that is a very important factor in this problem and more broadly.
0: I know you cover this in Trigger Points, Mark, but Tell our listeners a little bit about Christina Anderson, her story.
1: Yeah, so part of the process of writing the book that was particularly interesting for me was learning about um, ways in which the field of threat assessment has intersected with a lot of different types of people, and that includes some mass shooting survivors, Christina Anderson being one of them, a remarkable young woman who was nearly killed in that landmark mass shooting at Virginia Tech. In 2007, Uh, she was shot three times in a classroom where 11 of her classmates were murdered and their teacher as well. Um, She survived her wounds, a remarkable story of resilience, and not only that, but became interested in response and recovery work and and preparation and prevention, Uh, really made this her, her young professional career and began speaking and telling her story getting to know leaders in the field of threat assessment, um, leaders in universities around the country. And I had the opportunity to get to know Christina and watch her speak as I was working on the book. And we had a lot of conversations over time about the case at Virginia Tech, which at the time was the worst mass shooting and school shooting in in American history. Um, And there was a lot about that case that had been written about and... Researched and investigated. But she and I both, I think, coming at it from different perspectives, had the sense that there was more to that story. And in 2019, we took the opportunity to go dig into an archive in the Library of Virginia that was little known at the time, still is, I think, in some ways. It was sealed for a decade after the massacre, um, had been unsealed as part of an agreement with the victims' families. And we were able to look at a lot more. Um, primary source evidence from the big investigation that the state of Virginia had done after that terrible attack. And it really it just reaffirmed what I think was generally understood by the threat assessment field, and, and more broadly, that it was a catastrophic failure of sharing information, of seeing the warning signs in the perpetrator of that attack, who for years had uh, been conducting. very troubling behavior and setting off alarm in a lot of different people, um, had had mental health evaluations. And so what we found was that, you know, there was even more evidence of that, Um, you know, working with Christina on that, it was just remarkable to watch her engage this material. I mean, here was someone who was nearly killed by this person, gone through this unimaginable trauma and yet was interested in understanding it better. And I just found that tremendously inspiring. Um, And so I wanted to include her story as part of the work of the book.
0: Yeah, very powerful. What surprised you in putting trigger points together, if anything, Mark?
1: I think part of what was surprising in the process of researching the book was learning about the history of this field and what it came out of. I found it really fascinating that... um, You know, this work now is probably most applicable in thinking about trying to stop this recurrent problem of mass attacks, but it really began with trying to prevent assassination and the work that mental health experts did in collaboration with law enforcement agents going back to the 1980s. Um, I tell that story early in the book. Forensic psychologist Robert Fine, who was investigating psychotic violent offenders in a state hospital in massachusetts began to work with colleagues and with agents at the secret service to try to figure out what more could be done to prevent assassination Um, this also was unfolding in the era of of a lot of celebrity stalking and more attention on that kind of sensational um, activity and seeing how these threads all sort of came together um it was being Investigated in these kind of independent settings, there was efforts at the LAPD with their early threat management unit, uh, more focused on the celebrity issue. Uh, the Capitol Police had a version of this going on in the 1980s to protect members of Congress. And seeing how those those streams converge over time was really interesting to me. Um, I think it said something, I think it sort of spoke to how this approach to a very complex problem that is inherently unpredictable, this, this form of violence, was was in a certain kind of fun, fundamental way intuitive, right? That you would need a multidisciplinary approach, that you would need uh, to gather data in this way and to bring in different forms of expertise to work together to try to prevent uh, what is a very complex problem in a lot of cases.
0: Well, for sure. You walk me back to a time period when I first got in this business, Mark, and uh I can vividly recall our efforts on protecting Princess Diana and the children when they first came and just the scope of problems we had with um, fixated stalkers and paparazzi. My goodness, it was just over the top. Uh, Mark, is there anything that uh, I haven't asked you that you would like to say well, one other
1: aspect of that that I thought was really fascinating that your your audience might really enjoy reading in the book uh, is the, the way that some of that research was approached, I thought was really interesting. And I was able to learn some stories from that history that haven't been told before, primarily around uh, the work that experts at the time did to go and interview offenders. Um, people tend to know about this through the more famous work of the FBI and hunting serial killers, right? And going and talking with those offenders. Well, that approach was also used to develop this work. And so in the book, I tell the stories of how these experts went and spoke with uh, the person who murdered John Lennon, the person who murdered Bobby Kennedy, uh, the person who murdered Rebecca Schaefer, the young Hollywood actress in, in 1989 who was killed and prompted the LAPD to go down this road. And I think what they learned in those conversations is just really interesting. Um, And while that on its face seems like a different kind of crime perhaps than someone going into a supermarket and committing a mass shooting, they actually have so much in common in, in terms of what feeds into the case circumstantially and behaviorally. So uh, I think that's something that I would point to as, as really rich territory for, for readers as well to understand this problem with broader scope through decades of traumatic events of really a, a wider nature.
0: For sure. Mark Fullman is the author of Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings. Thank you so much, Mark, for being on the OnTIC Protective Intelligence podcast today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to talk with you.
0: This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co/center. Again, that's ontic.co/center. It was produced by AJ McKeon our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontek.co slash center for more information I'm Fred Burton thanks for listening